invite you to turn in the Word of God to Psalm 8. I'll give you a moment to turn there. While you do so, I'll mention something that might be a benefit if you are newer or maybe you're visiting this morning. Churches have different ways of approaching the Word and the content of the Word. Our goal in every true church is to present the whole counsel of God. The primary way this church is seeking to do so is by working through large sections of scripture, passage after passage, if not entire books. Over the past 12 years, we've had the opportunity to go through more than a dozen books, almost completely or completely books like Jonah in the Old Testament or Ephesians or 3rd John. More recently in this past year, the majority of sermons came out of biblical books. We had Mark and Ruth and we had 2 Samuel. Part of the reason for doing that is it preserves the church from any one pastor cherry-picking the issues or interests that he might have. And they may be, be, they may be entirely well-intentioned, but that brings you into all the matter of God's word. Very important. On the other hand, we don't have any opposition to what we call systematic or thematic series. There isn't just one passage, for instance, on the Trinity. And there's more than one passage you need to go to to learn about the sacraments. And so recently, we worked through the doctrine of the sacraments, a number of sermons looking at all the passages or many of the passages related to that theme. Typically, we do this by way of a catechetical series. This is old news for many of you, but also remember we're passing on a tradition to our younger members too. A catechetical series just follows the major questions of the Christian faith that we've outlined in a confessional document, something that we've agreed. These are the big ones. This is what we have to come back to. And this morning, we are beginning a thematic series or a suite of sermons. It'll be punctuated by Advent. We'll break from it for Advent. But it's going to be between eight and ten sermons. That's my guess here. And this is by request and with the wisdom of the consistory has everything to do with the times that we live in, that we need to pause and think about one of two of the most important questions that you will ever ask. One of the two greatest questions. And both of those questions are found in Psalm 8. As we hear the word of God in Psalm 8, I invite you, see if you notice what they are. Listen to the word and see if you notice what these questions are. And one of them is going to be the key question of this thematic series. Let's give attention beginning at verse 1. We'll read the entirety of the psalm. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let's ask the Lord to teach us this morning. 
Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the scriptures which reveal your name, your attributes and activities. We ask this morning that you would speak into our hearts, that you would, be, you would go beyond anything which your servant might say in himself, but that you would work, that you would cause truth to ring. We pray for transformation in ourselves first, in order that through your grace there might be transformation in our congregation, in our families, city, and extending into the world. We pray for you to be glorified, for your name is majestic. And all God's people say, Amen. How many books that you've read do you return to again and again? I would imagine not too many. There are very few books which most people will return to more than once or twice in their life. And even fewer passages that you will return to dozens and dozens of times and continue to think about. Usually there are a few, though, and they stand out to you. There is a book that unquestionably has been hugely influential for about 500 years. And I didn't know that the first time that I began to read that book. It is The Institutes of the Christian Religion, written by John Calvin. What I knew is that just a person I respected had asked if I wanted to read anything worthwhile. I said, sure, what do you recommend? And he said, pick up that book. I didn't realize how thick it was. I was in my early 20s. I was really not reformed at that point. And so I didn't go in with some of the baggage. Whatever you think of Calvin, one way or another, I didn't go in with the baggage. I just went in to read. And the first lines of the book, if you were to read nothing else, the first lines I have thought about hundreds of times since. It was almost 20 years ago. He begins his book this way. And the, the Institutes of Christian Religion is really just meant to be a summary of essential Christian doctrine. He begins with these words, Nearly all the wisdom we possess, that is to say, true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts, the knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves. You cannot know who you are apart from a knowledge of who God is. And you cannot know God rightly if you don't understand truly who and what you are. I continue to think about that. And it's a comfort to open the scriptures and to be persuaded. Calvin was not the first to recognize, to identify these as essential questions. The psalmist does. David does. Thousands of years ago, approximately 2,900 years ago, King David raises that first question when he says in verse 1, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name? The name of God stands for all of his attributes and activities. It represents who he is, what he does. And David wants to dwell on who is this God, just how majestic is he? And he begins at creation when he thinks about the sun, the moon, and the stars. Just the math alone, to be able to determine their orbits, let alone set them in those orbits beyond any ability of mankind. David looks at them, and although he doesn't know many of the things we know in these days, he sees the regularity of their motion, and he is astounded at them. How majestic is God? He's the creator and the ruler over all. You have set your glory above the heavens even. 
the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, go beyond these heavens to what is invisible and eternal. And yet in verse 2, he points out that though God is high, yet he has a greatness that allows him to condescend to that which is low. He mentions that God makes allies and servants out of babies and infants to put to shame the strong. There is a kind of greatness which is incapable of condescension. Think of the, the big, strong man who doesn't know how to be gentle. He's weak. God is great in his capacity to come down and to favor those who are weak. And David is thinking about the Lord in this way, and he underscores the importance of that first question by bookending the the psalm, where in the very first and the very last verse, he repeats the same line, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name. This is one of the greatest, most important questions you can ask. Who is God? Just how great he is. I put before you not an original idea, but I believe an idea shared by every one of the most significant figures in church history. The effectiveness of the church, spiritually, not just in terms of noise, but in terms of real effect, is intimately tied to how exalted your view of God is. Many churches make much about what we are going to do for God, and it's important to do that, but only in tying together the greatness of God to what we're called to, does anybody meaningfully rest upon him. Faith looks away from yourself, looks to God. One of the most important questions then is who is our God? In our series, though, we are going to look, especially in relation to that, at the second question David asks in verse 4. What is man that you are mindful of him? What is human nature? What is your purpose as a human being? What is human destiny? This is the question that he moves to. And notice he doesn't just take it in itself because man doesn't live in a vacuum. We don't just float in space. But first he relates it to God. Verse 4. What is man that you are mindful of him? O Lord, our Lord. And then he relates it to all of creation. Verses 5 through 8. Human beings exist in relation to other things. And you'll have to ask to know yourself, who am I? Is always, it's, it's not just diving into yourself. That's one of the chief faults of our present time. That people seek to know who they are principally by looking within. But it's to ask, what has God made me relative to other things? What is the calling that he's given to me? Now, I am not ignorant of the fact that in a group of this size, there may be people who in a most guttural way, feel that they don't need to ask this question. It's not something that bothers you. You don't give a whole lot of thought to what are, what are you. And on one level, I can understand that. Somebody says, I don't need someone to tell me what a human is. I am one. I am one, and so I am an authority on the subject of what a human is. I know exactly what a human is. But I want to push against that a little bit, and I hope that you'll allow me to push against that. And if you don't want it from me, you'll have to receive it from the word because that's where we have it here. If it was so obvious what a human being is, how do you account for the radically different activities and behaviors of individual human beings and societies together? The radically 
different behaviors of people and of societies and of nations indicate differences of belief about what humans are, what our purpose is, where we're headed. And so it's not obvious to everyone that your view or your view or your view of what a human is is true. People have different views of what a human being is, what a human is called to. I'd like to give you just a few examples of how different ideas about what humanity is play out, play out in life. Because we need to go into this persuaded that we are dependent upon God who knows what humans are to tell us. And then we will find that correlates best with our actual experience in the world. As one person put it, we don't just know that the Bible is true because it's like the sun. We can see it with our eyes. But because it shines light on everything else and everything else becomes more clear. When we see in scripture what a human being is, you'll find, oh, this makes so much more sense. It's more coherent with our experience. But what do people believe humans are? Let me just give two examples of what people think humans are that we would compare to scripture and say, no, that's not true. For millions of people throughout the world and in this nation, and these are not philosophers. I'm not talking about philosophers in the formal sense. Everyone's a philosopher in an informal sense. We all have questions about life. We want to know what it means. For millions of normal people, functionally to be human is to be the byproduct of a cosmic accident. A chance occurrence. You were born of chance and therefore you are fated to oblivion. There was no reason in terms of intelligence that brought things into being. There were simply mechanisms. Many people say that and many people believe it even if they don't say it. And yet they try to live as if there is meaning in the world with a capital M. But those two things are inconsistent. If you are born of chance and fated to oblivion, then there is no meaning with a capital M that stands above all things and explains things. And there is not human dignity with a capital H. Nothing has any more meaning than you of your volition choose to assign to it. And that means that the morality that another person follows or a whole society follows only has value insofar as you opt in. People want to act as if there is right and wrong and to stand over somebody else and say, how could you do that? And when they do that, they're walking in a blessedly inconsistent way with their own philosophy. They are borrowing capital that can only be explained in terms of Christianity, can only be explained in terms of monotheism, that there's a moral lawgiver who makes things right and wrong because he himself is eternally right. And so the world, when it operates on this belief that we are byproducts of chance, is being consistent, is being, it's fitting with what it says it believes, when it chooses to strip, at its will, people of human dignity, to pick and choose who it will regard as humans and worthy of dignity. On the most intimate level, there are those who suffer abuse. Think of a man beating his wife. That man is operating in a belief at that time that she is not a human being created in the image of God to whom he is going to give account. In that moment, the meaning he has assigned for himself is that he must be dominant. He must control a situation and he'll do whatever he has to to make sure he does. 
his beliefs about what humans are, are shaping his actions in the most profound way. And you might say, well, Christians also sometimes abuse people, not by being consistent with their beliefs. But a person who is consistent with their beliefs that there is no ultimate meaning in this world can and does do what we would recognize intuitively as evil. The genocides that have been and continue to be carried out to this day are consistent with the belief that there is no ultimate meaning other than the one that I will assign to it. In this case, I being governments, people in power. Ideas have consequences. And the best idea that we can find is the one that God has revealed to us about humanity. Let me give you a second example of how what you believe humans are will shape your life. And I want to address this idea, though it affects all of us, especially to some of the younger people here. Because it manifests so much online, and things online don't stay online. They flow into your relationships, into your vocations. You will be shaped by the things that you see. You are what you eat, and the same is true in terms of the content that you devour online. Many people, millions of people, whether they say it or just have embraced it, believe that what it means to be human is to be an expressive individual. Now, I'm not saying we aren't expressive individuals, people who want to demonstrate, want to manifest what we love, what we desire, what we care about. But what it means to be human is not reducible to that. What happens when you reduce human meaning to being an expressive individual? Everything outside of you begins to corrode and to die. Let me explain what this looks like. If what it means ultimately to be human is to manifest, to put into the world some demonstration of what's important to you, first of all, what your hobbies are, your interests, your idea of of beauty or enjoyment, then everything outside of you that in some way tries to limit you from expressing yourself becomes an obstacle to be overcome. Everything outside of you that in any way tries to prevent you from acting on all of your desires perhaps becomes an enemy to be destroyed, to be cast down. This stands at the root of what has been described by some as the anti-culture that has been developing in our society for more than a generation, really generations now. I say anti-culture. What we are increasingly living in is not a culture by classical definition. It's not. It's an anti-culture. That is, everyone agrees that the one thing we want is for no one to dictate what the culture is. We'd, everyone gets to play by their own rules, and the only rule is don't step on my toes. You can't have your cake and eat it too. As you manifest, for instance, I, I have to be whatever I want to be, then your family, if it has a different view on matters, becomes an obstacle. More than 25% of all people under 40 are estranged from at least one of their parents. Such a statistic was unheard of in the past because your family relationship was just a given. It was objective. You might not get along with that person, but they're your parent. You didn't say, they're not my parent. And the same is true for other family relationships. The institution of marriage, as it has been recognized for literally 
millennia and millennia and millennia and millennia has been treated as something that in one generation we can just throw off. One man and one woman united for life for reasons beyond just, this person fulfills me. And we've come to look at a spouse not as a total package ordained by God before the fall, but especially after the fall as a great benefit in this age who brings together certain kinds of stability and security, especially for children reared in the home. Stats will overwhelmingly bear out that children flourish best in a home with one mother and one father consistently. And we say instead, if I want to be this over here, nobody should get in my way. And so an institution that has been preserving humanity for thousands of years against all that it could be is treated like in one night we can get rid of it. People's own bodies become the enemy because their body, which they were given, it's one of the givens, if it stands in the way of them proving that they have absolute power to self-express, then we've got to change our body too. Whether that be cosmetic, whether that be in terms of changing or attempting to change how others perceive their sexual identity. The body becomes the enemy because it's stopping me from proving I have absolute personal freedom to manifest my desires. That's not freedom. It's not freedom to be set like a creature addicted to something which will kill it on a path to pursue absolute self-realization because so much, as we know according to our Christian faith and as any honest person knows according to their conscience, so much of what we are is affected by evil. Not every desire we have is reliable. As the scripture says, the heart is deceptive. Who can know it? Imagine for a moment a fish. A fish who begins to think that maybe it would like to live on the land. And it swims towards the shore and it throws itself out of the water onto the beach. And it says, with its gasping last breath, because this is a fish that can talk apparently, (laughs) it says, freedom! And then it expires and dies. Freedom is not to be understood in terms of the ability to cast off all restraint. It's the ability that we gain when we most live within our appropriate environment. One Reformed theologian, Anthony Hukama, says it this way, Man is bound to God as a fish is bound to water. When a fish seeks to be free from the water, it loses both its freedom and its life. When we seek to be free from God, we become slaves of sin. Or to use another analogy, think about the person who wants to learn an instrument. And they will give something up to become proficient. They give up the liberty to go out every night of the week and spend hours and hours with their friends if they want to be one of the greats. They will give up the liberty to pursue other hobbies as they focus on this one instrument. Very, very few people have the gifts that they could play many instruments with relatively little practice. What they gain is freedom to, say, move their hand across the fretboard and their fingers go where they wanted them to go. They gain liberty to move their hands across the keys and all the chords come together and the rhythm is accurate. In this way, too, you gain the most freedom to be truly human when you are most resigned to the wisdom of God and having appointed for you an environment, a role, a nature. 
When you understand who and what you are and what you've been called to, then you can remain in that sea and stop throwing yourself outside of that sea. That's what we have to come back to as we look at this series, that God has given us an answer to the question, what is man? As we move through the doctrine in these sermons, we're going to look at what we were originally in the creation. We'll focus especially on Genesis 1 through 3. But of course, chapter 3 connects to the fall. We have to look at how has sin changed us. Are we identifiably human as Adam was? We're going to see that we are, but we have to account for the effects of sin. And then we'll move beyond the fall into sin and look at the way that Christ tells us what a human is. Think about the words for a moment here. I know that they're very familiar to some and perhaps new to others. The words of one of the most significant summaries of Christian faith ever written. The words of the Nicene Creed. The Nicene Creed states, For us humans and for our salvation, the only begotten Son of God who was begotten of the Father before all worlds, who is God of God, light of light, very God of very God, who is begotten but not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made, he came down from heaven and was incarnate, that is, he took on flesh, by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary, and was made man. Why did he do this? The creed tells us that he did so in order to be crucified in our place, for our salvation, for us men, for human beings. But not only that, you can only be human in the fullest and the final sense, because insofar as you carry out sin, you live a subhuman life, as do I. But you can only be fully, truly enacting your humanity as you are redeemed by Christ and then patterned upon his life. God wanting to show us what humanity is has become one. And we have to look at Christ in light of what scripture says about humans if we want to know what we are called to. You are called after the pattern of Christ who is the first fruits of the age to come, the truest humanity that there will ever be is God. And the power that works in you is the same Holy Spirit that he has sent forth who dwells in him. As we consider these things, God help us not just to be able to talk about it with others, but little by little to live it and live in the enjoyment of knowing what our future is. Let's ask him for a blessing upon this even now. Our Father in heaven, we thank you and we praise you for the majesty of your name. We thank you as well that you are mindful of us in spite of our sin. That even this day and this week as perhaps we feel burdened with the knowledge of ways that we failed to live according to the humanity to which you've called us. Yet you love us more than we can imagine and it's proven on the cross. We thank you that in the incarnation we get a glimpse truly of the image of the father. That when Jesus touches Thomas and embraces John and speaks kindly to Peter, even after being betrayed, we see exactly how Christ relates to those who trust him. Help us to bear such an image in the world. Receive our thanks, Lord, as we do so fallibly, but knowing that one day we will do so perfectly. For in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.